Gazette Newspapers presents the Parting Shots Podcast. Now, here's your host, Daily Gazette Associate Sports Editor, Ken Schott. Thank you, Scott Geezy, and welcome to the Parting Shots Podcast. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe today. Thanks for joining me from the Parting Shots Podcast studio in Schenectady, New York. We have another great show for you. There will be a very interesting documentary airing at 1 p.m. Sunday on ESPN dealing with the bitter rivalry between the Colorado Avalanche and Detroit Red Wings from 25 years ago. I'll speak with the producers of the E60 documentary Unrivaled, Mike Farrell and John Mitten, in just a little bit. The Golden State Warriors won their fourth NBA title in eight years last Friday when they beat the Boston Celtics in Game 6 of the NBA Finals. To talk about that is the host of the Damon Bruce Show on 95.7 The Game in San Francisco. And more importantly, he is a Notre Dame Bishop Gibbons High School graduate. Here is Damon Bruce. Damon, uh, welcome back to the podcast. It's been a while since you had a chance to chat. and uh, hope things are well. hope your health is well. and hope the family is well. Ken, it's good to talk to you, man. It really is. We're doing fantastic. It's a lovely, sunny day in San Francisco. It was gorgeous yesterday, and the parade was an awful lot of fun going up Market Street. It was uh, a culmination of just an unbelievable run for the Golden State Warriors, and, and things are great out here. So thanks for having me back on. It's always great to talk to anyone from back home, and, and it's a pleasure to, to say hi again. Well, appreciate that. And then let's talk about the parade, I think, what nobody, I think, coming into this season expected from the Golden State Warriors. I mean, they came off you know, two years ago, you know, being the worst record, had the worst record in the league last year, losing in the play-in round. I mean, Clay Thompson just coming back after two years away. Steph Curry, we don't, you know, he had some injury issues, and obviously, yeah, when they lost the title to Toronto in 2019, they, you know, losing Thompson to injury. Uh, Durant was going to, you know, he got injured and ends up leaving. How surprising was this championship? So as soon as Steph, Clay, and Draymond Green got to play healthy basketball minutes together, now because of injuries that you just described, because of injuries that happened late in the season after Clay returned, Draymond got hurt. When Draymond came back, Steph got hurt, and Clay was a work in progress through the end of the regular season, and the Warriors played. 500 basketball at best. They were not great. They didn't close like a freight train. But the minute Steph, Clay, and Draymond got healthy, Ken, they won a championship again. I mean, we're talking about three of the greatest basketball players to ever form a triumvirate in sports. These guys have not been eliminated when they finished a seven-game series together. Draymond Green said that rather delicately because that includes him being ejected against the Cleveland Cavaliers when the Cavaliers won it in 2016. But either due to injury or that, when those three guys have been allowed or able to play any seven-game series that they've ever played in their careers, they've won it. So it's it's staggering to see the amount of success. They're an unbelievable sports story. They're an unbelievable business story. What Joe Lacob has done as the owner of this franchise has transformed a, a, a you know a, a franchise that basically walked around the NBA in clown shoes for decades mm-hmm. and then found itself worth six billion dollars, the second most valuable team in the NBA, the sixth most valuable team in the entire world. 
Um, so it's just, it's been amazing to see what's happened since Steph Curry's been drafted, basically. That's where it started. I mean, you mean they, uh, they caught a little bit, I think, a break, too, when the Phoenix Suns you know, had the best record in the NBA get blown out in Game 7 at home by Dallas. I mean, that's sort of, do you think that sort of set everything in motion for them to have a chance at winning the championship? No, I, I, I'll tell you what, you know, they just won the championship. So they get to say we would have beaten Phoenix too, right? You know, I mean, you know, people want to hold the Warriors responsible for getting other teams to the Western Conference Finals. Like, that's how much pressure's on them and, and the expectation of excellence. Um, it's it, it really is something else to see. You know all the, the the criticisms and the what what wasn't good about this run, and it's it just doesn't make any sense to me because what we have is as successful and as changing and transformative a basketball team as I think we've ever seen in our lifetimes. Like there, there there's just a denial, I guess, that you know people didn't like the fact that this team sort of invited itself to the party and decided to hang around. And after the two-year absence, people, were, I think, were ready to move on. But no, I don't think that this is about to end anytime soon, Ken. Like, I think they're, we're going to be doing a podcast again together maybe next year. That's how good they really are, how well-positioned they really are in the West. So it's... uh it's fascinating to have seen it all and had a, a front row seat to, to what I, I told you before we even started recording. It's just been a gold rush in sports out here. Except for the Oakland A's. <laughs> <laughs> there, what a sad story. The total opposite of the Golden State Warriors. It's yeah. one of the saddest stories in sports. Um, I, I think I was, Michael Wilbon may have said this after the game Friday night on the post game. He said that Usually, you know when who the best team is in the finals. And even though Boston won, I think it was Game Three, he knew the Warriors were the better team and ended up, you know, proving they won the last three games of the series. What, what? Even though they were down two one in the series, why was there so much confidence that the Warriors were going to win this thing? Well, I just thought it was a matter of. You know, Draymond had just played about as poorly as you could play, and that doesn't happen very often. And I thought that he was going to answer the bell. I thought that someone was going to come along and end up really helping Steph Curry through it, and then that turned out to be Andrew Wiggins, who really, I think, changed everybody's mind about the type of player that he is. So that was huge, and while that was happening, we were watching Jason Tatum, you know, spit the bit a little bit. You know, he, he, he did not close games the way that you need to close out games against defending not that the Warriors were the defending NBA champions but guys who have been there and done that before and the Warriors just comfort in tight games and tight moments and the way that the Celtics were kicking the ball all over the place the entire series it just started feeling like the Warriors were going to I, I think come out on top there were moments where I thought, geez, Boston needs to be up 25, 30 points right now. Like everything's going their way and nothing's going the Warriors way. And it was only a 12 point difference. And a 12 point game is the new four point game mm -hmm. in an NBA game. It really is. A 20 point game is a 10 point game. That's how much the three ball has changed the game. So uh, the, the Warriors just, if you've been watching them closely, 
you could kind of see like, oh, they got it back. It's it's starting to happen again. And I, I think we're we're at the dawn of like I just told you, an, another Warriors run that could be two or three years. They got a lot of young talent on their team right now to carry an awful lot of regular season workload minutes and rest up the three most important basketball players we've seen together since, I guess, you know, uh, Ginobili, Tony Parker, and Tim Duncan. Mm -hmm. You mentioned Wiggins. Uh, um, Obviously, he was the number one pick in 2014. The Warriors picked off in a trade meet. How much has he matured? especially in the finals. He just started to rebound. I mean, if that's maturity, Ken, he matured light years. You know, <laughs> Andrew Wiggins proved to be the rebounder that he's really never been in the regular season. He's averages about four or five rebounds a game, which for a guy with his athleticism, you know, is why people questioned his motor. When the stage, when he hit the stage, he hit the boards, and that's what turned him into just the second best player that the Warriors had in the NBA Finals. He was fantastic when he needed to be. Every single time the Warriors needed to keep a possession going, he was tapping it out. It was He was getting the rebound. And he just played great defense throughout the entire NBA Finals. Uh, he, he's... I think he's changed the narrative big time. Instead of being a joke or a guy who isn't quite who anyone thinks he should be, he, there people people are going to talk about him as one of the top ten perimeter players in the NBA now, and I think they should. I mean, you don't want to compare him to Dennis Rodman because Rodman was his own unique individual style with rebounding. Could could he be a Rodman like player if he? No, see, know. see, if anyone's our Dennis Rodman, that's Draymond Green. Yeah. So. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so that, that, that Draymond will be taking all the Dennis Rodman comparison, I guess. No, Wiggins is incredibly skilled. Again, that's why people have always built him as frustrating because he's never quite delivered on the skill and on the promise until you saw him in the finals. Now the expectation is going to be, hey, you can do that. Do, do that all the time now. We've seen what you're capable of. So, um, you know, that's that's Steve Kerr's task for next year, but he doesn't need to worry about that for a few weeks. They can all go on vacation now. Yeah. Another player has really emerged in the finals, Jordan Poole. I mean, just uh, what was his role and uh, contribution? Because it seemed like it was pretty good there. He is a really good, young, talented player. Uh, he has got a lightning-quick first step. And what he doesn't do defensively, he's got offensive capabilities to make up for. He can hit a lot of big shots. He is a little fearless to the point where people say he's a little too fearless at times. Um, He needs to put on about 10 pounds of muscle this offseason. He needs to follow the Steph Curry path turn into a much better defender as his career goes on. And I think we're looking at a very, very good young top 25 NBA player in a year or two from now if he continues this trajectory. Uh, His year three was a massive step forward in his professional career. Let's talk about Steph Curry. He finally won an NBA uh, Finals MVP. It's amazing he wasn't named MVP in one of the previous championships that they won. Just how legendary of a status is, does he have now? He's a made man. He's a made man. He's he, he is the possibly greatest athlete the Bay Area has ever seen. And we're weighing him against Willie Mays and 
Joe Namath, or excuse me, Joe Montana, and <laughs> Jerry, Jerry Rice. Uh, Jerry Rice. Yes. You know, this is one of the single greatest athletes we've ever seen. You know, Barry Bonds, it's, he is better than all. He's won more pretty much his way as being the guy that a franchise has been built around than anyone else ever has out here. He is everything you'd ever want in someone who you wanted to build a franchise around. He's a model citizen. He's got a great family. Like, I, I think that people, you know, have, have, have some jealousy, and that's where some of the animosity comes from. But he is, he's just, he's been fantastic to deal with on every conceivable level, and he's an eagle superstar, which in 2022 is a rare thing. Yeah, he had he did not make a three pointer in Game Five, and the, and the Warriors won that. Just does he is he sort of, sort of Jordan like in like there's something that you know somebody will criticize him for, and he's like, I'm going to show you, and he shows you. No, that's just a shooter letting you know that there's a market correction coming. You know that that's what I mean. That's what I think explains the shooting performances. But yeah, he admitted he's got rabbit ears. You know, I think I think he says he checks Twitter at at halftime of games. He uh, he is aware, and I do think that this is you know the first team that is like dynastic that has really come through the social media era. These guys have been more scrutinized than any group of professional athletes this generation than any generation that's ever come before it the echo chamber is deafening that these guys live in so i do think some of that outside outside noise of course gets in but he wears it you know very well quiet and dignified you know again we got draymond green in his podcast much different guy you know much different guy handles it differently uh and we love draymond out here you know the guy is just for a sports talk radio host oh my gosh it's it's one of the greatest content drivers uh we've ever had we love draymond green in the media uh but to watch steph curry just do it all so quietly and dignified not worried never out in front of his own skis and just delivering time and time again um you know, he's just, he's like I told you, he's a made guy. He gets to sit at the table in the back of the NBA restaurant with the greats of all time forever now. Yeah. And and like I was saying, this isn't over. If, I bet you four titles gets to five before it's done. And if there is five, five becomes six. And we all know who has six. Mm -hmm. So, you know, like that's where this might still be going. We cannot close the book on something that is still happening right in front of our eyes. And here we go again is what I hope. (laughs) So no last dance uh, documentary down the road for a couple, at least a few years. (laughs) No, no, we're not. No, no, no one turned the disco ball off. We have some dancing to do. Well, speaking of dignified people and and, and last dance uh, affiliations, Steve Kerr, what what is it about him, the coach Steve Kerr, and the hum, the human being in Steve Kerr? What makes him? What makes those two different people so special? He's a normal person. That's it. Steve Kerr's a normal person. He's like you. He's like me. He cares about families and other things other than the main topic. And when it does come to the main topic, he is an expert on that. You know, he is a a consensus builder. 
He's a room uniter. He is just the kind of guy that I think, you know, you can't help but admire as you're talking to him. And if you're the type of person who says, well, just show me the hardware, the man now has nine NBA championships to talk about. I mean, that is rarefied air. He is living one of the greatest basketball lives we've ever seen lived Mm -hmm. from a player uh, to, uh, you know, a a guy who worked in the media and as a GM for a little while to now a coach who – will be the first to tell you that without his players, he wouldn't be this level of successful, but it's about managing. It's about managing, you know, multi-million dollar and billion dollar egos these days, you know, and Steve Kerr is just, you know, a CEO of people, Like he would have been really good running the local hospital. If that's what he had chosen to do, he would have been a great, um, high school principal, if that's what he had chosen to do. You know, he just is a guy who cares about the things around him and treats people equally. And that's uh, uh, a rare thing in a, in a world of sports where, you know, and look, I, I, I went to, after I, you know, graduated from uh, and, and moved on from Schenectady, I went to Indiana University and grew up during the Bob Knight era where basketball coaches were throwing chairs and were maniacs and maniacal. Steve Kerr has shown the world that it you get it done the other way, especially in the NBA, which is such a player's league, and he just knows how to talk to guys, and guys respect the hell out of him. So it, it works. It's uh, One of the things I was talking about on the show yesterday was just how and it's rare to see a team that dominates at all three levels, from ownership to front office to the locker room. You know, normally you're good in one area, you're pretty good in another area, and you're at least competent or hopefully not bad in any of the areas. And your levels of, you know, where do you put the dominating, good at it, bad at it, how much do you stack up, to, you know, kind of tells us about your franchise. The Warriors are dominating at all three levels and it's it's steve kerr it's bob myers who like if if i put you on the phone ken with steve kerr or bob myers you would insist that the two guys were like having a nice off with you just friendly off like 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 you, you would be you'd be drowning in friendliness and professionalism at all times but it's not fake i mean and i think that's what makes it special it's not inauthentic. It's not business speak. They're real people. They're normal people. And it's cool to see them do it and have to develop a you know, little bit of a relationship with Steve. I get to have him on the show every week for years now that's been happening during NBA seasons. He comes on every single week. And I'll tell you, of all the guests that we get on, there is only one guy who is always on time. Always ready to go. Always prepared. I mean, all the time, Ken. And it's Steve Kerr. So, you know, that that's who he is. And I think, you know, the humanitarian me, the anger he showed in that press conference after the Texas shootings, uh, I mean, that, that to me shows he cares about what's going on outside of basketball. And I think some people rip him for that. And I, I don't know why they rip him for that, but I, I think it's you know, very commendable he pays attention to what's going on outside of basketball. Steve Kerr for president. I mean, I don't know what to tell you. Yeah. He, he, he get my vote, that's for sure. And then one that's the news broke over the weekend that uh, one of his assistants who had been expected to be named the head coach of the Charlotte Hornets uh, 
uh, Kenny Atkinson's changed his mind to stay with the Warriors. I mean, how I mean, did Kerr have an influence on that one, or is that Kenny saying, "Well, I, I like the fact I can win championships as an assistant over going to be a head coach at Charlotte." I think when you are surrounded by you know NBA incompetence and you finally find yourself in a competent situation, it's it's hard to leave. And Kenny Atkinson just told Michael Jordan. You know, yes, I want to be your head coach, and then changed his mind. Now, I, you know, his his family likes California. He's got two teenage kids who love it out here, and he's happy. And why wouldn't they be? They are, like I said, they're kind of ready to, if things and the puzzle pieces all really fit together and continue to fit like this, can they're ready to roll again for about two or three years. Kenny Atkinson can get the Charlotte Hornets or equivalent thereof coaching job whenever he wants it team like this only comes around once in a lifetime. So I think he's sticking around for a lot of reasons, and I bet you the money's real good, too. Yeah, I would, be, I would bet. So, and of course, having rings on your fingers, and that helps, too. <laughs> no doubt. So, uh, I think the last time we chatted, and we you know, switch over to baseball quickly here for a couple seconds. I mean, the, the Giants had hired Gabe Kapler, and I sort of, you know, mockingly said good luck with Gabe, and unfortunately, it turned out last year he did an excellent job. He couldn't do that with the Phillies, of course, maybe – now it's looking like the, the Phillies didn't have the talent at the time, but the fact the Giants, you know, winning a division last year, but not getting to the uh, the you know, past the, the Dodgers last year. I mean, is baseball back in San Francisco? I mean, is it Gabe Kapler? Just talk about the job he did last year. So. 107 wins, you know, a franchise record. It was an unbelievable regular season that kind of came out of nowhere in terms of any expectations for anything like that. I mean, Vegas had them at around 72 wins, you know, so 107 was just spectacular. Uh, No one was beating the Dodgers last year. Man, they were just, you know, they were a monster. Um, But Giants came close. They really did. They they came close with almost a total opposite approach of the way the Dodgers have done it. Um, Farhan Zaidi is just a, a, a... preeminent tinkerer as a GM and he loves playing platoon baseball and the Giants have had a decent amount of success with it. They're having another very good start to a year already that has been, you know, hit a little by injury and COVID early on. So we'll see. There's still a lot of baseball season left. No one's going to see 107 wins. I don't think in San Francisco again this year, but um, who knows where this summer goes. The Giants are back in terms of the Warriors are, done playing you know basketball season's over so yes ken the giants are back you know (laughs) absolutely we'll probably talk more baseball on my show today than you know any day since the really you know nba all-star break where you know the price of poker starts going up in basketball and you really start focusing in and man leaning forward into the warriors this year was an unbelievable story so that's kind of what we've been talking about since it's been happening uh, so, yes, the Giants are back. Baseball is back. Other sports are back. And uh, we, we have football back soon enough. But the other team, I mean, we mentioned the A's earlier in this podcast, but uh, you had, you've had a public battle with them on Twitter. What is, what's going on with the A's? I mean, are they end up going to be moving out of the area? Because, I mean, it doesn't really look like they're going to get a stadium in Oakland. I don't know. I mean, I, I just don't know what the end game is or the game plan because I don't see a city offering them the kind of money they're looking for, not in Nevada, not 
hear not any like they're they're in this ultimate limbo of gray area of can't get a deal done can't push anything through have no political capital in any direction they turn to they're a poorly run franchise they have completely been forgotten about and i hate to say it um, there is intentional sabotage on ownership to devalue the franchise when you look at their payroll their record their attendance their stadium situation what they don't do again i i've always said the coliseum can it could have been baseball's greatest dive bar it could be great if they just put a little elbow grease on it but they won't it's it's just it's intentionally depressing attendance to you know make sure that they're on that major league revenue sharing teat if you will i it's it's the saddest thing that just it's 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 a shame that owners can't be stripped of ownership after a decade of this finally you mentioned football the 49ers who's quarterbacking them oh it's trey lance let's move on here we go (laughs) it's gonna yes it's gonna happen it's going to happen so Jimmy Garoppolo is getting his big money at the Subway commercials then now. <laughs> He's going to be selling Subway sandwiches, and who knows where he ends up. But he will be moved. He will be traded. It feels like that's the plan. You know, Jimmy Garoppolo's goodbye press conference last year ended with him saying, goodbye, thanks for the ride. You know, that's that's basically it. So I think that they're just waiting for the right time to make a deal, which couldn't happen until he can go out and prove that his shoulder is healed from shoulder surgery. But I do think we are about to see a change in quarterback, yes. Well, Damon, I appreciate a few minutes. Always great talking with you. Let's start making more in a couple of years. Let's try to do this every so often. How's that? Ken, thank you for calling me. It's good to be on with you. I'll speak with the producers of the ESPN E60 documentary Unrivaled, Mike Frau and John Minton, in just a moment. You're listening to the Parting Shots Podcast. track is your premier source of horse racing news and events from the daily newspaper of the saratoga race course the daily gazette at the track features racing tips feature stories picks by naira racing analyst anthony stabile and andy serling and direct links to naira bets check out at the track at www.dailygazette.com slash at the track Hi, this is Daily Gazette reporter Ashley Onion. You're listening to the Parting Shots podcast with Daily Gazette Associate Sports Editor Ken Schott. Welcome back to the podcast. This year marks the 25th anniversary of one of the most vicious nights in NHL history when the Detroit Red Wings exacted revenge against the Colorado Avalanche's Claude Lemieux for seriously injuring Chris Draper in the 1996 Stanley Cup Playoffs Western Conference Final. The bitter rivalry between the two teams is a subject of the E60 documentary Unrivaled. It will air at 1 p.m. Sunday on ESPN. I watched a preview of it this week, and I'll say it is very good, and you have to watch it. On Wednesday, I spoke with the producers of the documentary, Mike Farrell and John Minton. Mike and John, I appreciate a few minutes. I know you guys are hard at work finalizing this uh, documentary that we're going to see on Sunday. Uh, Let me ask you... uh, First, Mike, and then John can uh, chime in. What attracted you to this project? Well, 
when ESPN got the NHL rights back uh, for the first time in 17 years this season, we, uh, you know, I'm a huge hockey fan. I grew up in Canada. Um, you know, I've lived and breathed the sport my whole life. And so it just felt like a, a ripe opportunity to combine what we do at ESPN with storytelling and, you know, these great stories that the NHL has to tell um, that maybe haven't had the, the spotlight that they deserved over the years. And um, we just felt like this one was was one that was just an obvious choice. It was it was there was so much depth to it there's so many great characters involved with it i mean you have like upwards of 20 hall of famers involved in this story um there's conflict there's heroes there's villains there's change it really had everything that you could ask for in a story and so um you know when we turned our our sights to wanting to do more hockey stories at espn this was one of the first ones we ended up discussing john yeah i agree with that Mike just said there. The only thing I could add there, Ken, is that I, I think uh, Mike and I are men of a certain age, and this rivalry defined our childhood in a lot of ways as far as rivalries in the NHL at the time. And when we started talking about it, we, we remembered it being such an entertaining rivalry. And then when we started speaking to some of our younger colleagues, a lot of them were unfamiliar with it in general. So it just felt like there was an opportunity there to either bring people back for some nostalgia or to engage people for the first time on this rivalry. Yeah, I, I'm 58 years old. I grew up in Philadelphia, and I was we I had season tickets to the Flyers in the Broad Street Bullies era, two Stanley Cups. And that era of hockey was just, it was dangerous. I mean, you had bench-clearing brawls and you know, fights galore. Uh, but when I, you, you watch what happened between the Avalanche and the Red Wings, uh, what happened in the 70s was basically a tea party considered how bitter this rivalry was, which started in the, in the 96 playoffs when uh, Claude Lemieux, not, a, not known for his clean play, uh, checked uh, Chris Draper into the stanchion and basically broke his face. Yeah, I, I think, you know, to that point, Ken, there's Claude Lemieux was interviewed in 1997 and we, we found the interview in our archives at ESPN. And it was a quote that jumped out to, to both Mike and I. And it was it was a quote that was featured right at the top of the trailer when we first released it. And Claude said in, in not not so many words that a rivalry. Uh, if it if it extends off the ice is only really when it, it, it becomes something worth talking about. And I think with that hit you're you're mentioning on Chris Scraper, it just became more than winning hockey games. I think that that's really when it turned personal for a lot of people. And the rivalry just uh, became more than than wins and losses at that point. And I think anytime a game becomes more serious and, and the stakes just increase and get higher in particular when, we get, when it turns personal, that's really when I think, uh, you know, things can reach a, a boiling point, a fever pitch. Yeah. I mean, obviously hockey is a sport where you, you take, if, you know, if somebody does something to your teammate, you're going to take, um, you're going to, you know, retaliate. And yeah, that way it's still set up. But we, we know this was building up, Going into the 96-97 season, uh, Lemieux missed the first two meetings against Detroit. And then when they play in Colorado, nothing really happens. And then then everything, all hell breaks loose when they play in Detroit there late in the season. Uh, I mean, just to see all that footage and look back at it, I mean, is it amazing? I mean, were you surprised that it happened at all? I mean, I, I don't think I was. I think everybody was. I think the Detroit papers, I think one of the headlines was it's time for revenge. 
Yeah, we actually we actually found the columnist uh, who wrote that column. His name's Bob Wojnowski. Yeah, that morning in Detroit, Claude Lemieux's face was on the front page of the sports section with a wanted poster <laughs> part of it. So that tells you to the, the temperature of the city at the time. Um, you know, were we surprised looking back at it? I, I don't think so. I think, you know, having the opportunity to kind of get to know a lot of the central players in this story through making this film, um, you know, Darren McCarty says himself that he, he's just a born protector. He That's just his personality. He's a guy that, that looks out for others. And he's been that way, you know, since he was a kid growing up. And I think that when you, when you get to know a little bit about Darren, a little bit about, you know, the way that he's wired and where he comes from, which we hope viewers will get in this film, you know, what happened on March 26, 1997 is not a surprise at all to anybody just knowing the personalities of the people involved. And I, think, I would say one thing that was actually surprising, Ken, to, to me, is the, the more that you got to know people who lived this rivalry, you know, depending on who you were speaking to, different people had different perspectives on what actually started this. I think if you talk to Adam Foote, uh, he had no problem bringing up to, to, to us a, a hit that he sustained from Slava Koslov in Game 3 of that series where, where his head was slammed into a, a stanchion holding up the, the glass boards in the corner that gave himself 20 stitches. I think when we talked to one of the trainers uh, Pat Carnes of the Avalanche, he first mentioned Uwe Krupp's season-ending injury at the beginning of that first season uh, being something that he felt wasn't necessarily a play that was on the up-and-up that caused him to turn his ACL. And so, depending on who you speak to, everyone has a moment that they point back to where they felt like somebody on the side was wronged, and I think the snowball really just started rolling uh, up until uh, when Chris Draper was hit. How did you manage to get all these players and you know, to be able to talk with me, it seems like it, it would take a, a lot of hard work to do this uh, and to get them to agree to talk about this 25 years later. I think that, you know, it, it was something that they wanted to talk about, you know. I think that once we kind of got in touch with people and we were able to, to show them that we were legit, like we were the real deal and, and we were trying to do a, a definitive uh, documentary about this rivalry in this era. Um, when we got when we got everyone in the chair to talk to them, I think they were eager to talk about it. it it's something that they were passionate about, that they lived. Uh, I think for a lot of these guys, it, it's just great memories. Um, and so it took some convincing for for some people near the outset. But once we started to get yeses from a few key people, like everyone else just kind of fell into place. And, and it really did feel for the most part that guys really enjoyed the conversation, you know, and like, you know, just as an example, Brendan Shanahan is, is the president of the Toronto Maple Leafs. And we interviewed him for, you know, upwards of 90 minutes about this topic. And then after we finished, he hung around and talked to me for another like 10 minutes or so. Uh, just sharing more stories and asking what other guys had said about it. And so I just think it, it, the people that are involved, it just takes them back to, to one of the best times of their lives for the most part um, when, when they felt most alive. I think that's the interesting thing. Like we, we talk about in this film about there's such a mixture of emotion uh, that's involved, whether it's anger revenge, vitriol, joy of winning the Stanley Cup, the, the sting of losing. And I think all of that combined to just, you know, make these guys feel 
at their most alive, really, when this was happening. And so uh, it was a lot of work to coordinate <laughs> to get everyone in the chair, but it was something I hope and I think that they really enjoyed doing. And the fact that you look you look, look back at that game, guys, and it's, you know, that game really unified the Red Wings because, I mean, this is a team that the year before had the best record in the league, got eliminated in the Western Conference Finals by the Avalanche. The year before in the sh- – the uh, lockout shortened season. They had they got to the Stanley Cup final, got swept by uh, New Jersey. Uh, so to me, the, I think this game unified them, and that's what got them on the run to win the Stanley Cup that year. Is that did you get the sense that they that the Red Wings felt that that was a game that really helped them unify them and get them there? Yeah, I really don't think that's an overstatement, Ken. You know, I, I think in general. Both of these teams had had growing pains that a lot of NHL teams even today have in order to build their way up to a Stanley Cup championship. And uh, I think for for the Red Wings and Avalanche, these two franchises at this time were just so elite. And it it really felt like there were two seasons. There was these teams versus everyone else in the league and then these teams versus themselves because – uh, despite how good that they were for the Red Wings' sake, they just really struggled getting over the, the hump and beating the Avalanche, especially during that 96 season. And so they had lost three regular season contests to the Avalanche heading into that March 26th game. And as much as there was a need and a desire to want to get over that mental hurdle of just defeating them, they also had hanging over all of them was this, this idea that they needed some type of retribution against Claude Lemieux with the pressures they were getting from their own fan base and their own local media. So there there was just so much at stake for that regular season game on March 26th. And, you know, Darren McCarty says in the film, and I, I tend to agree with him only from this experience, is people in Detroit remember March 26th as a just a seminal date in their franchise's history that propelled them to, to be champions, uh, you know, two times over during that stretch that, um, that I think, you know, not many cities remember dates on certain things, but in Detroit, March 26th, 1997 is, uh, is a holy date. Well, I, I like to tend to forget the 1997 Cup final because they swept my flyers in that <laughs> 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 which led Terry Murray, the head coach at the time, to say it was a choking situation heading into Game Four. But that's for that's for time for another documentary. The one thing I, I've covered hockey—I've uh, been a hockey fan, as I said—and I've covered hockey both uh, in the American Hockey League and currently college hockey. And the one thing I've always found fascinated with hockey players—I mean, they could be hating each other on the ice and really getting at it. But off the ice, everything seemed to be forgotten. And I think the one thing that really surprised me is seeing Darren McCarty and Claude Lemieux sharing uh, a moment there talking about that uh, incident in, in 1997. And, and McCarty saying that Lemieux is, is his friend. And, I mean, 25 years ago, that would never happen. The, 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 yes, watching that when they were talking with the fans there in Detroit, what did what did this, that surprise you? I mean, to see them together like that. Yeah, that was actually the very first thing we shot <laughs> for this entire documentary, um, and we had we had made an inquiry with with Darren about you know him being involved, and it was in the lead up to the 25th anniversary of that March 26th game, which was March 26, 2022. 
and they said that they had these plans in place for Claude Lemieux to come up and um, and do this event with Darren, and and we were we were somewhat surprised. I, I knew that they had done some appearances together over the years, but but nothing like this. Um, and I was there that night. I mean, they talked for for a good three hours plus about everything under the sun, including this rivalry and you know their their lives and Benick stories and sort of the way that their relationship has evolved. And I did find it fascinating, and I and I felt that it was it was genuine as well. Um, and and Claude himself talked a lot about boundaries and how you know he never took anything on the ice personally that was just his mentality and that he really drew a a a red line between what happened on the ice and off of the ice um and and i think that mentality has sort of led him and and darren through the growth that he's gone through over his life has kind of led them to this point where you know they're they're older guys now and they're able to let the bygones be bygones now on, on the other side of it chris draper um, feels differently about it. And he, you know, he has stated to us that he's yet to receive an apology from Lemieux. Um, he said that he's fine with the fact that Darren and Claude are friends, but that doesn't change the f- way that he feels personally about Claude, uh, which is that he absolutely does not forgive him for what happened and he doesn't really have any desire to get to know him. So, you know, we found that that mixture of perspective to be really fascinating because you have two guys in Darren McCarty and Chris Draper who have been best friends for decades. You know, Chris Draper, uh, Darren McCarty was the best man at Chris Draper's wedding. So like they're as, as, as thick as thieves. And then you have this other guy in Claude Lemieux who they have polar opposite opinions of, uh, which just led for a fascinating dynamic. Unrivaled will be shown Sunday at one o'clock on ESPN. It'll be, uh, Extended version of it on ESPN Plus, uh, and uh, and of course, uh, be re-airing uh, Monday, June twenty seventh, at eight PM on ESPN two and nine PM June thirtieth on ESPN. Guys, I appreciate a few minutes talking about this. It was a lot of fun, and uh, it's amazing uh, what a, a rivalry like this. I mean, we, I don't think we have enough of these rivalries in the NHL anymore. I think the game is sort of, you know, a little more pass, uh, you know, a little more peaceful than it was back when I was growing up, but. To relive this was a lot of fun, and I appreciate you guys doing this. Thanks very much. We appreciate it. Thanks for your interest. Thank you, Ken. Good luck to you and your Flyers. <laughs> it's going to be a while. We got, <laughs> we got John Tortorella. We, yeah, John Tortorella leading things. Got, I'll, I'll say this much. It's going to be a very interesting couple of years with him in charge. <laughs> that would be a documentary for another time. To <laughs> we'll get right on that. We'll get right on that. <laughs> right. We'll be back to wrap up the podcast in just a moment. All of us love sports, but not all sports are created equal. College sports have big budgets, dedicated alumni networks, and corporate sponsorships. Professional sports have even deeper pockets. Millionaire owners, lucrative TV and radio deals, and merchandise sales. High school sports have you. Everyone agrees high school sports give us plenty of reasons to cheer. And now's a great time for us to give back. Supporting your hometown high school won't cost you much. 
but it will go a long way to ensuring the games we love the most are here to stay. New York, high school sports. They're good for our kids, good for our community, and best of all, they're good for you. This message presented by the New York State Public High School Athletic Association and the New York State Athletic Administrators Association. Hi, this is Byron Hunter, the world champion New York Giants. You're listening to the Parting Shots podcast with Daily Gazette Associate Sports Editor Ken Schott. Back to wrap up the podcast. There was no NASCAR race last weekend, but the Daily Gazette Auto Racing Contest is back this weekend. If you'd like to play in the contest, go to dailygazette.com and click the Auto Racing Contest banner. Keep checking out dailygazette.com and the print edition for the latest updates in news and sports on the coronavirus pandemic. I want to thank all the doctors, nurses, and first responders who are dealing with this pandemic. We appreciate the job you're doing in this difficult time. If you have not gotten vaccinated, please do so. Do it for yourself. Do it for your family and do it for your friends. That wraps up another edition of the Parting Shots podcast. I want to thank Damon Bruce, Mike Farrell, and John Mitten for coming on the show. I'm taking next week off, so there will not be a podcast. I'll be back with another podcast the week of July 4th. If you have questions or comments about the podcast, email them to me at shot, that's S-C-H-O-T-T, at dailygazette.com. Follow me on Twitter at Slapshots. The views expressed on the Parting Shots podcast are not necessarily those of Gazette newspapers. The Parting Shots podcast is a production of Gazette newspapers. I'm Daily Gazette Associate Sports Editor Ken Schott. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next time. From the Parting Shots podcast studio in Schenectady, New York, good day, good sports.